Thanks, Wendy, for reading that for us. Uh, good morning, everyone. My name's Lindsay. Uh, great to be with you again this morning as we dig into Jonah 3 together. Uh, do keep Jonah 3 open in front of you uh, as we uh, look at that and look at what it has to say to us. Uh, in my final semester of uni, uh, right in the crunch time of exams, I was working away in the computer labs down at Curtin Uni, uh, and a fire alarm went off. Uh, it was a loud siren accompanied by a voiceover uh, telling us to immediately leave the building. It was a crystal clear warning that a fire had started and that if we wanted to survive, we had to get out now. Nobody moved an inch. Uh, a few of us looked around, seeing if anyone was going to make a move, if anyone would risk losing their computer, their unsaved work, their precious time before the assignment deadline. Uh, and then at the same time, we all thought the same thing. I don't have time for this. Uh, we all got back to work. Uh, one person even complained about the siren. Why do they have to make these things so loud? In the next chapter of Jonah, uh, we, see a, we read about a very different response to a warning. Uh, now, the moral of the story uh, about the fire alarm is that 21-year-old guys can be pretty dumb and don't always have their priorities right. Uh, but the message of Jonah 3 is about a much bigger warning. And Nineveh's response to God's warning shows us the power of God's word and God's patient plan. And you've got those there in the outline. Jonah chapter 3 is going to give us confidence in God's word and it's going to give us a deep grasp of why the Bible speaks so often and so forcefully about God's judgment and why we should as well. Uh, if you've missed the last couple of weeks, we're halfway through our sermon series in the book of Jonah. Uh, in chapter one, we saw Jonah on the run from God uh, and along the way managing to tell some sailors about God who promptly became uh, God-fearing worshippers of him. And Jonah chapter 2, we followed Jonah down into the belly of a great fish and listened in on his prayer to God. Uh, that, showed us God's, that showed us Jonah's deep trust in God uh, while also helping us see that uh, Jonah has a few things to work out about himself and about God as well. And so here we are in chapter 3, back where we started, with God sending Jonah to Nineveh. Uh, but we're actually going to start in the middle of this chapter and see how the Ninevites responded. Uh, and that will help make it clear for us what they are responding to. So what happens? How did Nineveh respond? Uh, when the Ninevites hear Jonah's message, uh, they don't, like I did in that computer lab, just kind of look at each other and shrug. They repent en masse. They hear that their city will be overthrown, they believe the message, and they respond. Let's have a look at verse 5, and verse 5 gives us a great little summary of then what's detailed in verses 6 to 9. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. It's an incredible scene. We see that the Ninevites' respond, response is a total change. Uh, it's a total change because it's top to bottom, uh, and it's a total change because the wickedness that characterized Nineveh back in chapter 1, verse 2, is the very thing that they give up when they repent. It starts at the top with the king in verse 6. Let's look at what it says. 
When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. The king swaps his throne for a pile of dirt and his royal robes for rags. The king puts out a press release that everyone should do the same, uh, and not just the people, but even the animals. Have a look at verse 8. He says, let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Uh, seeing someone in sackcloth would tell you how they're feeling on the inside. And the narrator mentions sackcloth three times. It's a picture of humility and grief, and especially grief at what the Ninevites had done. And so it goes hand in hand with fasting. It's not just the look of your skin that should show how you're feeling, but the feeling that you have in your stomach as well. It should reflect what's happening in your heart. For the people originally reading Jonah, the picture is of, of a city in sackcloth and fasting would have been a picture of true repentance. It's this disarming picture of seeing the enemies of God's people responding to God's warnings the way that they were meant to. Uh, the Ninevites didn't get it exactly right, though. Uh, we see here the, the king of Nineveh is just covering all of his bases. Uh, even the animals join in with the sackcloth and fasting routine. Uh, you might have seen that video of a kid being taught how to play t-ball. Uh, the ball is kind of on the tee and he swings and misses. And the coach says, keep your eye on the ball. So the kid goes like that. Uh, to the people who know what's going on, it's a bit of a silly picture. Uh, but the king of Nineveh is covering all of his bases. He's getting the cows dressed up in sackcloth because he's showing that he's listening. He's listening like his life depends on it. And the sackcloth and fasting, uh, they aren't just a ceremony. They're a really deep confession of guilt. Let's have a look at the rest of verse 8. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Give it up, he says. Change what you are doing. Stop being evil. Stop harming each other. Everything needs to change. The Ninevites realize that there's nothing they can do to twist God's arm. He's under no obligation to do anything except destroy them. But they are hoping and praying that a 180-degree turn from their wickedness might encourage God to do the same, to hold back on the punishment that he's warned. Maybe God will relent. Maybe he'll have mercy. Imagine what those 40 days were like. You have been convicted that your wickedness is about to be punished, that you, your family, your city, it's all about to be destroyed. You don't really know who God is, but you know that he is your only hope. Everything you do, the clothes you wear, the food you don't eat, the animals you don't feed, the way you treat your friends, the way you treat your enemies, it's all laser-focused. Almost six weeks of waiting and seeing if God will relent. Waiting to see if God will be compassionate or if you'll perish like you deserve. All this from a city of people who just last week were known for their wickedness and brutality. 
Not only is Jonah surviving in the fish uh, less impressive than the resurrection of Jesus, as we saw last week, it's not even the most impressive thing to happen in the book of Jonah. What happened that Nineveh's response could be so complete, so top to bottom, from the king on the throne to the cows in the paddock? What could have caused this response? What could make them believe God? Let's go back and look at what kicked all of this off. Uh, The thing that kicks it off is God's word. Uh, God's word sends Jonah to Nineveh with a message. Let's look at verses 1 to 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Uh, Verses 1 and 2 read almost exactly like Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Uh, The second half of the book starts with a fresh start. I think there's three little things we can notice about the differences here between the start of chapter 1 and chapter 3. First of all, we see Jonah is a changed man. He's responsive to God's word. He hears and he obeys. We miss it in the NIV, but... Uh, Where Jonah in chapter 1 responded by going down to Joppa to run away from God, in chapter 3 he arises to go to Nineveh. He's finally acting in obedience to God. I think the second thing we see, uh, Nineveh's wickedness isn't the main thing anymore, like it was back in chapter 1. God's instruction here isn't to preach against Nineveh and its wickedness, but for Jonah to go and proclaim God's message. Uh, There's a shift in focus that has started to happen, that is getting ready, getting us ready for what's to come. Uh, And thirdly, this time God has given a message to Jonah. God's word sends Jonah to Nineveh to proclaim God's words to the people there. And when that happens, when Jonah goes with God's word, we see just how powerful God's word is. After two chapters of run-up, the thing that Jonah was sent to do is over and done with in one verse. Let's look at it in verse 4. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Jonah preaches. He speaks God's word and the whole city gets turned upside down. Uh, And it's clear that it's God's word doing this. It ain't Jonah. Uh, Jonah is a changed man, but in many ways, he's up to his old tricks. Uh, Let's just take a quick look at Jonah's efforts in this chapter. Uh, Firstly, verse 4. It's not exactly a Charles Spurgeon-type sermon, is it? Uh, In Hebrew, it's five words. He's given them God's message, but not much else. Now, uh, it could be that there was more to what Jonah said, Uh, especially given the Ninevites are able to attribute these words to God and believe him, as it says in verse 5. But they still don't really know who he is. The king doesn't know God like the Israelites do. He doesn't know what God is like. He doesn't even know his name. Uh, He calls him the generic name for God rather than the personal name of the Lord that the Israelites know. He's running around getting the cows dressed up in sackcloth in ashes, getting dressed up in sackcloth while saying, who knows? I see there in verse 9, who knows? Maybe this God will relent. Maybe this God is a God of compassion. Who knows? 
If only someone could tell them what this God is like, that salvation belongs to him. If only there was someone who could fill them in on what God is like, some kind of messenger had been sent to Nineveh during these 40 days of heart-thumping anxiety. At best, the narrator is trying to keep the focus on the effect of God's word, and at worst, Jonah is doing the bare minimum that he can while still technically obeying God. It's not that Jonah has these electric, heartfelt, oratory skills. It's not his detailed exegesis and laboring over the finer theological points of his sermon that's brought heaps of clarity to this situation. What is it? What makes the difference? It's that he is speaking God's word. That is what has caused this mind-stretching revolution to happen in the hearts and minds of people across the city. It's because God's word went there. Jonah does what he's told. He gets into the city and proclaims the message that God gave him. And the results speak for themselves, right? That level of repentance is meant to make us stop and think, how is that possible? How could that happen? How could people so ingrained in wickedness and violence be changed just like that? Be willing to upend their lives, become so convicted that the way they are living is worth mourning. And the answer is that God's word makes it happen. And it happens straight away. Jonah gets one of three days into his journey and then the the narrator leaves Jonah behind. And it's like the message is off, spreading itself, taking on a life of its own. Uh, When a bushfire gets big enough, it starts generating its own heat and its own wind that makes it spread more and more quickly. And it's like God's word. God's word is like that in this story. It took Jonah a storm, a near drowning, a trip into a fish's stomach, and then a messy trip out of the fish's stomach to get him listening to God. But here, God's message, with or without Jonah, has made its way across the whole city, all the way to the king. And so it's worth pausing here and asking ourselves a question. Do we believe that God's word is that powerful? Most of us would uh, understand theologically that God's word is living and active and that it's uh, by God's word that he made the whole universe. But do we believe that it's powerful enough to change the hearts and minds of our neighbours? Or do we doubt it? Uh, I now have the joy of working with a bunch of Christians, uh, but I know that when I was working as a surveyor, I could fall into being sceptical that any of my colleagues could ever become Christian, that God's word could ever be that powerful. And I think we can be in danger of doubting Uh, how powerful God's word is, when we do things like spiritually profile the people around us, uh, deciding that this person is more likely than that person to become a Christian and respond to God's word, so I won't bother with that person. Uh, The Bible does give us a a very big picture of how sinful human nature really is, but it's easy in our sin to forget that God's word is more powerful than that, that God's word can change the heart, of a colleague, a sibling, and even a whole city. I think we can be in danger of doubting how powerful God's word is when we become scared to talk about God's judgment, 
when we think it will be a turn-off for future conversations rather than a key ingredient to the message of the gospel. God's compassion doesn't make sense without the reality of judgment. It's part of the gospel. It's part of the thing that will cause people to change, to realize that they need to change. It's a reminder to them that this world isn't all there is. Uh, Our world isn't just made up of the stuff that we can taste and see and touch. Talking about judgment is a reminder of the thing that everybody knows deep in their bones, that there is a God who made it all, and that one day he will judge us. Jonah chapter 3 helps us fight back against our own skepticism. It should make us bullish about how powerful God's word is. Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. God's message of the gospel brings this kind of change that we read about. It reveals God's righteousness. God's word is God's power. It has a life of its own, a power of its own. But why does this message have to include judgment? Why all this unpleasantness about God's destruction and God's anger? What's God's plan there? Why get angry? Why let people know that you're angry? Well, let's have a look at verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. The reason God's message uh, includes warnings of destructions is because God is patient. Here's the thing you need to know about God's anger. It's slow. The reason God gets angry is because he wants to show compassion. God is rightly offended by our sin, but his slow anger gives us an opportunity. I am very quick to anger at mosquitoes. Uh, They are annoying, and in most parts of the world they're dangerous, and I have no desire to show them any compassion. There's usually about half a second between one of them biting me and me squashing them. But God isn't like that. God should just squash Nineveh. It's a place of wickedness and violence. And God's word to Nineveh could have just been one of immediate destruction. As easily as he spoke and brought the world into existence, he could just say, let there be no more Nineveh. And it would be gone, problem solved. But the word of destruction that he sends is a word of warning because he wants to show compassion. Sometimes God's warnings are loud and clear. The storm in chapter 1 was a taste of his judgment, which he rescued the sailors from. Uh, In chapter 3, they don't get uh, a taste, they just get an echo. In chapter 3, they got the fire alarm, but in chapter 1, they could smell the smoke and feel the flames. But both are warnings of what will happen to them and to their souls if they keep living a life of ignoring God and doing evil. Both chapters are warnings about the coming judgment. Both of those warnings come because God wants us to listen to them. And he has warned us again and again and again. 
Uh, it's not just in the story of Jonah. Acts chapter 17, verse 31 says, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is public about the judgment he's going to bring on the world so that people can be saved from it. God tells us what our sins deserve so that we will recognize our sin and give it up like the Ninevites did. Because one day it will be too late. Right now we are in the 40 days that Jonah warns about in verse 4. We don't know how long that 40 days is, but we've been warned that it is a finite amount of time. We saw how this news turned Nineveh upside down, how they they responded so wholeheartedly to the message. We have been given a much better message than the one Jonah was given. The message we have that the destruction we deserve has already been put on Jesus if we trust him. We aren't left in agonizing uncertainty like the Ninevites were because Jesus' death is in the past and his death was the perfect, complete, peace-giving, reconciliation-achieving payment for God's anger at my sin. Jesus is God's word, God's word in perfect human form. He is the message we have. But Jonah is warning us that we only have a finite amount of time to speak that message. We are already away into the 40 days. God is being patient now so that as many people as possible can be saved. Uh, If you're here today and that is news to you, then I would love to chat with you afterwards. Maybe the news that God will judge makes you angry, that God could be that kind of God that he could get angry and be that tyrannical. Uh, But I hope you can see from Jonah chapter 3 that he's being kind in warning you right now that the punishment that you deserve does not have to fall on you because the message that Jesus' death can be the punishment for your sin is being offered to you right now. Uh, If you're here today and that message is your testimony that you have put your trust in Jesus, and the judgment and punishment that we are warned about has already been put on him, then we can't keep it to ourselves. We can't believe that we are in those 40 days and live as though Jesus isn't going to come back and judge the world. We can't be that complacent. But we can be encouraged, encouraged that God's word is powerful and that that is the word we get to speak, the best news in the world. There are all sorts of things that 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 could look like, uh, but it can't look like us being silent. Uh, It could look look like you uh, inviting your friends to a St. Matt's Christmas event, grabbing one of these flyers on your way out and giving it to them. Uh, It could look like working out who you think is the least likely person in your office uh, to becoming a Christian 
and offering to read the Bible with them. Whatever it is that we decide to do, we should do it in light of God's patience. We should have confidence in God's powerful word and speak the message of the gospel. Because verse 10 will be true for everyone who believes this message and depends on Jesus. On the last day, God will see how they turned from their evil ways and he will relent. He won't bring on them the destruction that he threatened. Not because we were good enough, but because Jesus was and is good enough. Because the message about God's patient plan is powerful. Powerful enough to save a whole city from destruction. Powerful enough to save you and me and anyone who believes that message that we get to speak. Why don't we pray? Gracious Lord, uh, we thank you for the story of Jonah. We thank you that uh, your plan is to be patient. We thank you that as your word powerfully goes out, uh, that we get to be a part of that work. Uh, please give us confidence uh, in your word. Would we be encouraged by uh, the repentance and the response we see across the whole city of Nineveh? Would we be encouraged to speak your word and would we be thankful to you that you are a patient God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.